Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Euphrates, sorry, Ephraphites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown you to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I am going to have, am I going to have any more sons who, who could become your husbands? Return, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? 
Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Please open up your Bibles at Ruth chapter 1. That is very important. I quite like art. I think I've shared this with you before. I quite like art, not the uh, small pictures. I'm not that refined. I like the big stuff. I like the ones when you go in the National Portrait Gallery, there are huge paintings, battle scenes on the left, on the right, big canvases. It kind of describes my character. I'm not into subtle. Um, I don't do French cuisine. That's a little bit too bland. I like big flavours. I like Branston pickle. Um, I don't like things unless you can really taste them. And then I, I appreciate them. However, when it comes to art, I'm a work in progress, no pun intended. When you go up against these huge oil paintings, oil acrylic paints, they are so impressive, not because of their bigness. They are impressive because of their intricacy and detail. It has been known for me to set off an alarm. I think I've done this twice. Because what I like doing is going up against these huge pieces of art very, very close. When you go in for a zoom-in picture on these huge pieces of art in the National Portrait Gallery, if you like a little bit of Van Gogh, you can go up very close and you can see a splodge of yellow paint. That shows my refinement, that artistic word. It's called a splodge of yellow paint, but in the splodge of paint, you can see bristle strokes. In the dollop of brown, you can see that the dollop of brown has been stretched with an implement, maybe a wooden palette implement, to make a limb of a tree. You can see that the splodge of yellow with the bristle marks still in it that's dried over hundreds of years, that's now a petal. And so big pieces of artwork are so impressive because of the detail of the artist and the care and attention. It looks like a mess when you're very, very close. But you can see the detail and you can see the purpose only when you pull back. Why are we going to spend a month in this tiny little book of Ruth? Because of the intricacy of this book, this book has been very good for me because it's not Indian cuisine that's big on colours and tastes. If this were a meal, it would be French cuisine. It's the mellowest book in the Bible, but one of the most profound. It's care and tenderness in this book, almost like no other. It's not about the macro. It's not about the big. It's about the detail of people's lives. It's going very, very close and looking at just the odd detail here and there and the limb of a tree and uh, the petal of a flower is going close. It's not like any other Old Testament book. Old Testament books are about affairs of countries and nations. They're about big prophetic words. God doesn't speak in this book. It's about uh, miracles and saving a people for himself. God is hardly mentioned in this book and yet his fingerprints are everywhere. It's a book about small people who have a, an intricate and woven place in God's tapestry of history. 
It's a domestic little soap opera that is so important to the lineage, the family line of King Jesus. There's no dramatic answers. There's no big events. I mean, at the end of the book, all that happens is the birth of a baby, and that's so, that's so normal, apart from who the baby is and the family line of which they're a part. But this is a book for people who live undramatic lives, perhaps like you and me, who wonder what the mundane has to offer on Monday morning. This book's for you. This book is for helping us understand how the macro God is involved in micro lives. And it's a chapter that I think has a lot to teach us about faith. That we meet the three main characters of the book. You can argue, well, where's Boaz? He doesn't appear yet. But we meet three people, and I want us to think about these three people and the three different aspects of faith that they demonstrate. Here's the first one. His name is Elimelech. We meet him in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Where's the story set? Let's get our boundaries. It's in the days when the judges ruled. If you've got a paper Bible, if you just look to the page on the left, you can see from the last sentence how that time is described. It's a time, if you wanted to understand the whole book of Judges, this is the normal sentence that people will point you to. Judges 21 verse 25. It was a time of violence, a time of lawlessness. It was like the wild west of the Bible because... Judges 21-25, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone had a gun on their hip if they were invented. They didn't wear kind of big hats. They didn't have horses. They had camels. But it was a time like no other with no king on the throne, no one to set boundary places in the right uh, sphere, no one to say what the law was. And so everyone made up their own law. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the setting for our story. We keep going in verse 1 with geography. We're in the town of Bethlehem. That's an important name. It means house of bread. And yet, Elimelech, the first main character we meet, makes a decision. The spotlight is shone on one family, making not a small but a significantly large decision. It's made by the husband, we expect. And so he leads his family 50 miles to the east. They probably went over the top. They probably went the northerly route. But they traveled from God's place, God's land, where God's people live, Judah and the town of Bethlehem. And they went east to Moab. On surface, if you uh, just had this passage from the Bible, it looks like a normal refugee story. Because we're told there's famine. And so famine has to be dealt with. And so we're going to leave, we're going to up sticks and go, we're going to go to the east, and we'll go and find fame, food, and fortune to Moab. But when you begin to zoom out in the Bible, you realize that this is an extraordinary decision. The Moabs were the arch enemies of God's people in Israel. We can see that from the book of Exodus and into Numbers, where God's people are led by his hand through the wilderness towards the promised land. And the Moabs were unkind and harsh towards God's people. And so there were laws written that there was not to be one Jewish to Moab marriage because of the unkindness. No Moab would go into God's presence ever. 
They worshipped a different god, the god of Chemosh. He loved child sacrifice. He was a harsh tyrant of a god. And when you read that into verse 1, you see that this is an extraordinary decision by Elimelech. Elimelech means my god is king. And yet there's very little evidence in Elimelech's life about his spiritual state. Verses 3, 4, 5. You don't have any details. The, the Hebrew is clunky. It's choppy. And you have, in three sentences, a ten-year nightmare that's summed up in cold, brute, and harsh facts. There's no story. There's no background. There's just data and detail. It's one tragedy after another in a ten-year period. Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die, and she's all alone. She's not just a widow in a foreign land. She's an old widow with no resources to her name. Every member of her close family has died in a decade. Now, in the modern world, we're told, if you're a feminist, that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That's a modern feminist statement. But in those days, women needed men as much as they do today. In those days, if you didn't have a man in your life, you were incredibly vulnerable. You can see that from chapter 2, where men are spoken to by Boaz. Leave her alone. Protect her. Why? Because they wanted to do other things to her. Women were vulnerable. Vulnerable because of uh, economic pressures, vulnerable because of safety, vulnerable in every sense you can think of. Your status in Ruth's time was not linked to your education. The first question would not be, what job do you do? What school do you attend? Where do you live? It would be about your family. And Ruth and Naomi are all alone. She has no security. She's lost her providers. She's lost her hope. She's fled from famine. But emptiness is her current experience. And to heighten the whole picture, not only has she not got sons, but the daughter-in-laws that she's got in her hands are childless. And there's no hope for the future. Ten years without children, no descendants, which means the end of her family line. Family was important, but your name was absolutely everything. And by the time you get to verse 5, if you've got an NIV that we read from, it doesn't help us. Verse 5, Naomi's name is not there. It literally says, the woman. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's not just lost her bank account. She's not just lost her social security. She's not just lost her status. She's lost her name. And names were so important. Her husband's. Oh, her husband and her sons were just memories. They were just photos on the wall in the front room of her tent. Moab and the journey and the decision that they made in verse 1 promised her life. All it's brought her is death. And the question in this really sober beginning to a message, thinking, come on, give us some good news. Well, I'm not going to because it's important that we stay at the pace of the story. How did it get to this? How did it happen from verses 1 to 5? How did Elimelech make this decision? Perhaps it went like this. He noticed a new job on the internet feed. Uh, it says, tent included. There's a new Mondeo camel as part of the package. 
uh, business travel will be minimal, healthcare provided. All you need to do is to move to the east, and there's food aplenty. But nowhere do we get that he made any reference to his king, to God, in the making of this decision. It's a disobedient move. He knew his history. He's a child of God. He's a child of Israel. Nowhere do we read that he thought about the disruption it would make to his service. Nowhere do we read if he thought, is there a good church in Moab? And there would not be. Nowhere did we think, what about the fact that I'm leaving all my Christian friends behind? It's a disobedient decision of faith. And it struck me this week, men in particular, brothers, if you are a husband in a home, if you are a dad, is there any evidence when a decision is to be made? Does your faith come into play? What helps you form and make the decisions that you have to make, men and women, if you're Christians? Is culture more determinative of the values that we have when a decision is to be made than our Christian faith? It's very challenging. And we're only at verse 5. Does the fact that I'm a Christian make any difference at all to the decision I make when I'm offered a new job, when a promotion is in line, when there's very little money at the end of the month? What goes first? Our checkbook, if we were to have them still, so often reveals our priorities. And sadly, Elimelech teaches us the important factor. We leave God out of decision-making at our peril. And there are disastrous consequences of his disobedient faith. That's Elimelech. Here's the next character we meet in verses 6 to 18. Her name's Naomi. I wonder, spoiler alert, if the whole book of Ruth should be called Naomi. But more of that in a later message. If we see a disobedient faith from Elimelech, in Naomi we see a bitter faith. Verse 6 tells us that uh, Naomi starts to pack up. She's uh, tuned in not to uh, Virgin Radio, where Chris Evans has got a new contract. She listens not to Absolute, not to Radio 2. She listens to Radio Israel. And over the airwaves, you can hear that the famine has ended and God is providing food. So she packs up um, her belongings. They probably wouldn't have been much or many. And she makes the 50-mile journey back westward now, back to Bethlehem. And you can imagine the journey that we're told of from verses 6 to 18. She had plenty of time to talk. I don't know, walking 10 miles a day. Perhaps it's a week's journey or thereabouts over hilly terrain. And you can imagine her frustration just alluded to in these verses as she makes the journey day by day. Perhaps her frustration was boiling up, simmering, and then it got hotter on the journey. That's not just the physical temperature. In her heart... Happiness is replacing bitterness if there's any happiness at all. Look at verse 11. The second time she tries to dissuade her daughters-in-law from journeying on with her. Perhaps frustration is boiling up now. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I, that may become your husbands? 12. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Why come with me, Orpah? Why come with me, Ruth? I've got nothing to give you but emptiness. 
I've got nothing to give you but sadness and bitterness. By the end of the chapter, verses 19 and 20, look down there. I'm sure uh, Elimelech and Naomi were big on the cocktail scene in downtown Bethlehem. So when they came back to the main city gate, everyone was there. All the women were there saying, we know you. We remember you. How's it going? And there's play on words around her name, the sweetness of her character that her name stood for has been replaced with bitterness. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I went away with a child holding each hand, perhaps, and I've come back with empty hands. If there's anyone in this story who had a right to turn their back on God, it was Naomi. It was Naomi. She's bitter at God. She's frustrated, perhaps angry. I went away full. I've come back empty. But look at what Naomi says. Verses 19 and 20. This bitterness in my heart has come because of what God has done in my life. Naomi doesn't take the easy route. It's very easy, isn't it, to say, when things are going well, God has blessed me. When things are going badly, the devil is against me. Naomi doesn't do that. She has a strong, robust theology. She has a strong understanding of the God of the Bible. And she realizes that God gives, and in God's purposes, God has taken away. It's been my experience, the type of God you believe in will always affect the way you handle tragedy in your life. If you believe in a God, and if you understand the God of the Bible in a limited sense, he's far away, he's distant, he's set up the universe and left it going, he's aloof, he's detached, he's cosmic, he's deist. He only has got concerns for the big issues of life. He's about salvation. He's about judgment. He's about justice. He's about nations. He doesn't care about me. If you understand God is like that in his character, that will affect how you understand tragedy when it comes in your life. Because a God that big, you can't blame him for the details in the smallness of your life. But a God that big has got no comfort to give you in times of trouble. What about if you flip it? What about if you say, no, no, I don't believe in a God who's big. I believe in a God who's close. I begin, believe in a God who's drawn near. He knows the hairs on my head. But when it comes to things that are hard, when things go wrong in my life, the thing I find hardest most of all is if he's that close, he must be so cruel to do nothing about it. Here we have a woman of faith who is bitter, but is processing her hurt and her ten years of tragedy before the God who she knows very well. If you're like me, often I get bitter and angry and frustrated at God when my plan is not according to God's. He doesn't help me out. He doesn't help me to succeed. He doesn't meet my agenda. And I think there's something of that in Naomi's experience. And because of that, she can't see the signs of hope that are springing up in her experience as well. What do I mean? Well, look at the signs of hope. All through this portion, verses 6 through to 18, you see the word return. It appears 12 times. 6, 7, 8, 10, so on. 
This word return is kind of the key word of the whole of chapter 1, the whole passage. It's the word that in Hebrew that's used for repentance. Same word. It's the word shuv. So although Elimelech has been utterly disobedient, although Naomi's gone along, perhaps Naomi is not doing as bad as she perhaps appears to be. Although she's bitter, she's listened out to Radio Israel and she's returned, verse 6. And after all these uh, bitter comments, who is it that's walking along with Naomi back into the, uh, the streets of Bethlehem? It's Ruth. It's kind of comic in, in a chapter that's so sad. Sometimes when you're that bitter and angry against God, you can't see the signs of hope that God is working and woven into your life. I mean, here, uh, here she is. Don't call me. Uh, she hasn't got a gruff voice like that. She's not that deep yet. I'll try and put my lady's voice on. She says, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter because God has dealt so severely with me. I've come back uh, empty. I went away full. And perhaps the ladies are saying, oh, hang on. Who's this with you? Who's Ruth? Or perhaps Ruth is saying, hey, what about me? What about me? I've just walked 50 miles with you. I've just pledged my life to you. I've up until death. What about me? When you're that bitter, perhaps you can't even see the signs of hope that God is weaving into your experience. That's what Ruth is teaching us in chapter 1. Disobedient faith, bitter faith. But no matter what God is leading you into, he will always be with you in the midst of. And the Bible teaches that even if we cannot see his handiwork, God is working in 10,000 different ways for his glory and for your good. Even when he appears absent, even when he appears that he's not listening, he's just working in ways that we cannot see. That's why uh, a lovely hymn was written by the pen of William Cowper. should appear behind us. He was prone to tremendous depression and heartache before God, but he wrote these famous words. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Where does Naomi go with the bitterness and struggle that she's experienced for 10 long sad years so that she returns to Bethlehem with empty hands? She takes all that sorrow, all that sadness, and she puts it right in God's lap. I cannot see what you've done here. You've made my life bitter. And it's so important we don't run to chapters 2, 3, and 4. Naomi right now cannot see anything but bitterness, and she's perplexed and confused before her God. But she's processing everything that she's had to go through right there. A psalmist says, it's good that the Lord has afflicted me. And Naomi's experience and the psalmist's words I think it's some of the most challenging in the whole Bible. It's disobedient faith of the man called Elimelech. It's bitter faith of the lady called Naomi. But here's Ruth to finish up with. It's the courageous faith of a lady called Ruth. When you realize how Naomi was feeling from these 10 tragic years, 
the actions and words of Ruth get more and more amazing. Look at verse 16, this famous sentence. Some people say it when they get married. Where you go, I will go, says Ruth. I ain't turning back. I'm staying with you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. I'm binding myself to you, and nothing but death will separate us. I know you've got nothing to offer me, but I commit myself to you and to your God. Here's Ruth in courage that she is prepared by faith to leave her place of safety, to leave her family, to leave her social network, and to go to a foreign land following her mother-in-law. It's quite amazing. Why and how? Ruth uh, doesn't say, I don't want to follow you. Um, I don't want uh, my gods anymore. Um, I want your God. She doesn't really say that. But what is said in verses 17 is quite remarkable. Look at verse 17. She says, your God will be my God. Then she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. That's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. She's not uh, kind of pluralist in her understanding. Naomi knows her Bible. And when we look at verse 8 and 9, we really see how remarkable Ruth's words are. In 8 and 9, uh, Naomi's doing her best to get rid of her excess baggage. She wants Orpah to go. She wants Ruth to go. She wants to send them back to her families, their families. And she doesn't say, may your gods bless you. She says, if you're going to have blessing and happiness and joy in your life, the God of Israel is going to need to bless you. Naomi knows her Bible so well. She knows her God so well. If you're going to live a blessed life, verses 8 and 9, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh is going to have to bless you. My God will have to bless you. She doesn't say go back to Chemosh and worship him. Go back to your families. But she's completely other-centered. If you're going to know the blessing in this life, God is going to have to bless you. Of all the cultures, the God of all the peoples, you must worship my God, the God of Israel, truthfully. And that moment, that reality, Ruth becomes a Christian. She converts. Verses 6 to 15, this strange interaction trying to send them back. Why would Naomi send Ruth and Orpha back? That's what struck me this week, even as a bloke who is often more self-centered than others. Why would she try to get rid of her only support structure? Why would she get rid of people that may be able to scratch a bit of a living to help her? How is Naomi so other-centered? Yeah? She doesn't want them just to go back and say, you can worship Kiosh and you can worship the God of Israel. She's saying, go back, go back, because I love you. I'm sure that's the case. Naomi is so other-centered that she says, go back, go back, because she loves them. She wants the best for them. She knows that she's got nothing to give to Ruth and nothing to give to Orpah. Orpah returns. But Ruth says, no, 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 I don't want to go back. I want to be with you. And I don't want to worship Kiosh. I want to worship your God. Because any God that can make someone like you, Naomi, love me, I want to follow him. I want to follow him. That's the only way that this could work. 
Ruth sees in Naomi's sacrificial love something of the love and compassion and faithfulness of her God. That's how she becomes a Christian, so to speak. She saw this commitment. And this is how most people become Christians. It's not through a a 30-minute monologue. It's not through a course, as helpful as those things can be. Most people become Christians because they see the sacrificial, other-centered love of a Christian laying down their life and loving a non-Christian friend through heartache, through hardship over decades. Courageous faith of Ruth is not driven by something that is culturally obvious. Their safety's back in Moab. But she can say, I want to follow you, Naomi. I want your God to be my God and I will follow you and follow him unto death. Because if you love me like this, that must be an overflow of his love to you. Boys, this is what it will take for you to live for Jesus at school. This is what it will take for you to be courageous as you stand for Jesus at school. It makes no sense to your mates. You will be laughed at. They will call you names. They will think your decision's strange. But to be like Ruth and have courageous faith is what the Bible calls us to. And you get to the end of chapter 1 and you think, well, I'm going to go home and I've just got to be like Ruth. Well, if you get to that point, you will miss the point. Because as much as we think Ruth models courageous faith, as much as we think maybe we should cross out Ruth at the top of our Bibles and write Naomi, because she is some lady, and that's before any mother-in-law jokes. They come next week. Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus. When you get to chapter 4 and see the end from the beginning... You see, not just that Ruth is an amazing lady, but you see her descendant is the unique son of God. And when Ruth looks at Naomi, she can say to herself, if I keep my life, if I return to Moab, if I go back to my social network, if I try and find a new husband, a Moabitess, it would be completely natural and probably a far easier. If I take the easy route back, that means Naomi will face a life of poverty. I know what I'll do, says Ruth. I will take on poverty so that Naomi may become rich. I'm going to take the risk of faith and leave safety so that Naomi would have hope. She may ignore me at the city gates, but that's the decision I'm going to make. I'm going to leave my father's house, says Ruth. I'm going to leave my country I'm going to become an outsider in a foreign land. I'm going to go to this weird 50-mile-away place to the west called Bethlehem and Judah. I'm going to become a servant. It's going to mean suffering. I'm going to get rejected because I'm an outsider. I'm going to be marginalized and probably not going to have a husband for the rest of my life. And those are some of the reasons that make Ruth such a great example of courageous faith. I mean, Ruth didn't wake up, I'm sure, one uh, New Year's Day and say, this year I'm going to be a sacrificial person. (laughs) This year I'm going to put my mother-in-law first. I've always wanted to be like that. No. If uh, Naomi's sacrificial love made Ruth understand who the God of Israel is, that she could act courageously, that she could leave all what was normal and sensible behind and trust the God of the Bible unto death. And if you marvel at that and see, wow, how did Ruth do that? Courageous faith. That reminds you of someone else. He left his father's throne above. 
so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself. He died for us. He left his father's house. He left his father's throne and he went on a journey and he took on our poverty so that we who are empty might become full. We who are poor might become rich. We're not to focus on Ruth at the end of chapter one, but the one to whom Ruth points to. So you'll never become like Ruth or even like Naomi unless you see the one to whom they point. And that's why we're going to come around this table. It strikes me that when we come to the table, it's something that's just so normal. If you're a Christian, if you are not familiar with these things, why do we do this? We do this because it's something that Jesus told us to do. It's a, it's a remembrance meal that's not sad. It's somber, but it's a meal table of joy. It's for all people who are Christians, whether you're part of this church or just passing through or part of a new uh, endeavor that started elsewhere and you're just here for today. We come and celebrate Naomi and Ruth's God. We come and celebrate Naomi and Ruth's heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we come around this table and take a small piece of bread and a small cup of grape juice because we know that Ruth's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was King Jesus. And he left all his riches up in heaven and he came down so that we who are poor might have his riches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful, carefully written little story that starts off with tragedy and bitterness and disobedience but ends with courage and hope and the birth of a baby. Thank you that your day, our days are in your hands. Help us to not doubt your character. And if we have bitterness in our experience at the moment, please help us not to doubt your tender mercies, but to process our heartache before you. Amen.